Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, December 2nd, 2011. surprises me is how many people out there think that uh, making a difference in the world is the equivalent to the gospel. It's not. The gospel does make a difference, but it's a particular kind of difference. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of Biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of really crazy things being said about God. But what's happened in a large segment, and it seems to me a growing segment of American evangelicalism or evangelicalism as a whole, is the jettisoning of uh, of a conscience and a mind bound by God's Word. And instead, it's a mixing of God's Word with subjective experience, feelings, whatever. And, uh, and as a result of it, Christ has been dethroned in many churches that call themselves Christian. And uh, what's been placed on the throne instead is the... Uh, theologizing ego of the pastor who then teaches other people to do the same. Uh, theologizing ego, ego being the I, the big I. And so that's one of the reasons why we hear a lot of pastors out there uh, from churches that preach about themselves. Because in their way of thinking, their victorious life, their conquering of particular sins, their ability to experience success, self-actualization, and other things has uh, qualified them to uh, teach other people how to do the same thing and follow in their footsteps so that they can experience victory in their lives. And and as a result of it, everything is 180 degrees backwards. And if you pay close attention to the words that they're preaching and teaching, then you realize that something is seriously wrong. Something is seriously askew. All of the things that the Bible ascribes to the work of Christ, these people ascribe to themselves. And, uh, and so what we do day in and day out here is take what people are saying uh, about God from you know Christian pulpits uh, from communiques put out by Christian publishers uh, Christian churches you know uh, magazines and things of the sort and say is is this really what God's word says 
And, and uh, it, listen, it's not politically correct, but it really needs to be done because false doctrine keeps people in bondage. False doctrine sends people to hell. A narcissistic reading of the text is completely powerless to bring you to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It leaves you in darkness. It leads, leaves you on the wide road, the, the wide highway that leads to hell. It leaves people in their sins. It leaves them unforgiven. It leaves them unrepentant. And ultimately, if they die in that condition, well, their eternal soul is at stake. And so in many senses, this program serves as kind of like a really, really cold, huge bucket of theological water that gets thrown on the face and body of people at times. And it can be jarring. Um, and so, you know, I understand that. Um, and that is not contrary to love. No, it, in fact, it is, it is at times the very necessary thing that needs to happen. And when you read like the book of Acts and you look at how the apostles, especially the apostle Paul and others proclaim the word, um, they did it firmly and in love. The, the, the two are not contradictory. The two concepts are not contradictory. It's just that in our politically correct society, and in fact in the United States, the, the, the worst sin that you can commit against a person is hurting their feelings. Yeah, listen, we'll take the risk of hurting someone's feelings because sometimes when somebody has got their feelings stepped on, not intentionally, but just by the fact that you've said that what they believe is not true, uh, that'll hurt someone's feelings. It'll make them mad, it, especially when you tell them, listen, the doctrine you're believing in, the pastor that you're listening to, all, all of those affirmations that Joel Osteen's telling you about, the sun stands still prayer, and and uh, all that kind of stuff, it ain't true. That ain't sound biblical doctrine. It ain't what the Bible really teaches, and you're believing false doctrine. They're, they They may get upset at you for you pointing that out. And so your prayer to them or your admonition to them should be along the lines of what the Apostle Paul said to the different folks that he preached to when he would go into different synagogues throughout the Mediterranean portions of the ancient world, telling them, uh, may uh, Isaiah's prophecy not be true about you, that they have eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear. People who have stiff necks, who refuse to listen to what God's Word says. Uh, who refuse to repent and to be forgiven, or as the apostle uh, is it Peter or Paul? I have to look. I think it was Paul said, you, know, "You consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life." So yeah, be careful. So so here's the deal. Okay, it, the the idea is this: is that it's neither doctrine or life; it's both doctrine and life. Scripture teaches about doctrine and life. For instance, not every passage in the Bible is an application passage. And uh, I, you know, my perennial uh, favorite uh, passage to kind of prove this, uh, now that we're in the, you know, we're in Advent right now and uh, rapidly approaching Christmas. Uh, but uh, when you read the narratives uh, regarding the announcement of the angel, Gabriel, to uh, to uh, Mary and to Zacharias and others, um, you know, in, in the case of Zacharias, uh, that he, he was going to father uh, John the Baptist. Uh, in the case of uh, Mary, that she was going to, even though she was a virgin, she was going to conceive and give birth to a son, uh, and his name was going to be uh, Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, uh, and he would you know save his people from their sins. Okay, so w when the angel Gabriel shows up, um, 
and announces to Mary that she's going to conceive and give birth to a son, even though she's a virgin, um, there's no application for you. Okay, the virgin birth, there's nothing for you to reproduce there. No, nothing whatsoever. Um, the virgin birth isn't a metaphor for something in your life. It has nothing to do with nothing in your life. It has to do with what Jesus, the Son of God, is doing for you and for your salvation. The thing that you are asked to do in regard to the virgin birth is believe it. Not deny it, not attack it, not subvert it, not sit there and say, oh, come on, look at the date. The calendar says it's 2011, and you're trying to tell me that a virgin gave birth to Jesus? Uh, that just doesn't happen. We all we understand how reproduction occurs in human beings, and it doesn't happen to virgins. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you understand what I'm saying. So, you know, there's no moral life application for you there. Listen to it, receive it, believe it. Okay. Now, there's other passages of scripture that 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 there are clear calls for action on your part. Clear calls for a change in your behavior. Okay. And so the idea is, is that when you preach to the entire counsel of the Word of God, it not only tells you what you're not doing or what you should be doing, um, it also tells you what you don't believe and should believe. You know, and so it's you know you think of it that way. So there's sound doctrine to be believed, and there's right practice to be applied in your life. It's not an either-or proposition. And over and over again, there are errors that are that crop up in Christianity when the cord is cut in the tension between belief and actions. Um, you know, if you're truly if you're truly a Christian, you are going to produce good works in your life. I mean, it is impossible not to. I mean, I mean that. Literally impossible not to. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't do good works. It just, that, that animal doesn't exist. I mean, you know, you know, it's, you get what I'm saying. Anyway, so, but uh, at the same time, um, you, you're not a Christian because you, just because you do right things. That doesn't make any sense. Um, because without faith, it's impossible to believe uh, to uh, to please God, and faith is trust in in God and His Word. And Jesus points out the fact that if you love Him, you will guard. Now, in the English translations, many times uh, translated as "keep," you will keep His Word. Um, but the uh, when you look at the uh, the Greek there, uh, the Greek word for "keep" is actually it gets translated "keep." It, it's a military term that has to do with guarding, and so you, you're, you're going to keep and guard God's word. You're going to hold it sacred. You're going to cling on to it. You're not going to stand by idly while people are attacking it, deconstructing it, trying to empty of its it of its meaning, or twisting and mangling it and teaching it falsely. You, you, you get what I'm saying, anyway. So this program, um, you know, from time to time, I have to remind you all, um, if you're new to the program, you're going to need to give it a few weeks to get, you know, to get used to this, because the reality is, is that you may have never heard um, somebody presenting uh, the biblical, theological, sound, doctrinal case using the uh, false doctrine as a foil. And you may, you may be put off by the fact that, I name names and I let you hear quotes from people who are just absolutely falsely teaching God's word. 
And uh, and you may be surprised that some of the people that, uh, well, whose doctrine we put under scrutiny here at Fighting for the Faith happen to be best-selling popular Christian authors with uh, publishing contracts from Zondervan, Thomas Nelson, and other major Christian publishing houses, Multnomah, you know, places like that. And just because somebody's uh, published a book uh, published by Zondervan doesn't mean that the doctrine that is taught in that book is sound, solid, or true, or should be believed. Uh, the merit of whether or not something should be believed or true is whether or not it squares with what God's Word says. It So just because somebody has a, a book published by Multnomah or Thomas Nelson or Zondervan, they don't get a pass. In fact, more and more and more nowadays, um, uh, if they have a book that's being published by one of those publishing houses, uh, that almost guarantees that uh, you're going to need to uh, check to see if what's being published in that book squares with Scripture because um, they don't seem to have much of a theological filter in many of the Christian publishing houses anymore, and that's a big problem because uh, they've, at this point, sacrificed the truth in order to turn a prophet, and that's never a good thing. All right, let's talk about what we are going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Man... Okay, so I didn't get to that piece yesterday that I said I would get to um, from the Huffington Post. Believe me when I tell you I don't want to read it. <laughs> it's Well, here's the deal. The, the guy actually says some good things. It's just that where it comes from bugs me. Anyway, <laughs> you know, anyway. And, of course, somebody on my Facebook wall sent me a link to an article <laughs> That has some study, you know, that says that the the more Bible reading you do, uh, if if you are an avid Bible reader, then you're more likely to become a liberal. And it's like, oh man, <laughs> yeah, that's just not happening. But uh, you know, it, what I've noticed is is that the Christianity, if you can call it that anymore, that uh, many conservatives are hanging on to. Think of Rick Perry and and uh, guys like Herman Cain. Um, doesn't sound anything like sound, biblical, orthodox, historic Christianity. It's more and more sounding like crazy subjectivist, you know, Patricia Kingish, purpose-drivenism, and weird things like that. And as a result of it, um, I, I think the folks on the right have got a problem, and that is, is that their religion is sounding as goofy as, and it's become as goofy as, uh, the mainline liberalism that uh, you know, I I cut my teeth on, uh, well, fighting against uh, uh, apologetically uh, back in the '90s. So um, you know, that's just something to consider. But anyway, so I I didn't get to that yesterday. I, I intend to get to it today. I've got a Keith Craft uh, blog post that I just can't make any sense of. Now understand this, okay? Not only do I have a degree in religious studies and biblical languages, I have a minor in history, okay? I also have a master's degree in business administration with an emphasis in leadership and organizational change from uh, Pepperdine University. And uh, and so um and you know <clears throat> so I because of the degrees that I have, you know, I you know, I understand leadership, I understand theology, I understand biblical languages, I understand apologetics. There's a lot of th- that, you know and, you know, I, I've you know, I kind of dabble in a lot of different things, but um, my master's degree is in leadership and organizational change. 
And so uh, I find it fascinating when um, these seeker-driven pastor types, and uh, in, in, in some cases um, uh, word-faith types, uh, try to dabble in, uh, you know, put out their big ideas about leadership as if it's they've, they've discovered something. And in reality, um, we, we've, we're all familiar with the, uh, the term pop psychology. Well, there's a growing category that I would call pop leadership, and it's just as schlocky and goofy as pop psychology is. And uh, what I'm noticing is is the, uh, the, 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 the people who've become purveyors of this stuff and the ones who pass it along, this isn't sound leadership. Okay, you know, for instance, I mean, if you were, you know, go and talk with somebody who practices, you know, psychology for a living and mention the word pop psychology in their presence. And I guarantee you, you're going to get an earful from that person. They're going to say, oh, man, I cannot believe that anybody takes that stuff. It's it's like a pseudoscience. It's like snake oil. You know, they, that's how they'll talk. Same thing with leadership. There's a growing category known as pop leadership, and it's pseudoscience. It's it's voodoo. It's snake oil. It's it's a bunch of guys who basically read pop level leadership books uh, as leaders in the uh, you know in seeker driven churches, and they think that they're experts on leadership, and they don't even have like clue number one what real academic study of leadership is about and what the what the major principles are regarding real leadership and so uh, the, the these guys are engaging in and passing along and and become prog- uh, prognosticators of pop leadership and it's it's uh, it's just so aggravating so I, I might have to start beating that drum on a regular basis just to warn people. So I got, I got that. I got an email from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. I want to pass along. Um, man, I'm looking at things. I, you know, I found another, another, another XP Media uh, person. This this gal's from IHOP, uh, talking about the coming food shortage. <laughs> You know, when I paid, played the Patricia King video the other day, where people are stopping her and asking her, you know, about the upcoming food shortage, this woman's saying the same thing. I'm going, okay, this is weird. I'll have to pass that along. Um, and then in our for our sermon review today, we're going to be going to uh, I, I, Mesa, Arizona, the Scottsdale Mesa area, and uh, listening to a sermon from a gal who really should not have been allowed to preach a sermon. Um, and it's, it's way outside of her skill set. Let's just put it that way. And, and the only reason I'm playing it is, uh, not because she's a, she'll become a regular speaker. She's not the type that would do that. This is a gal who for a living really spends most of her time working in like an arts, you know, a fine arts studio. Um, uh, you know, uh, we're talking about, you know, music, dance, acting, and things like that. And I think she was responsible for putting on a modern-day rendition of Scrooge at uh, the church, the City of Grace, out there in Mesa, Arizona. And uh, and she preached the sermon. And uh, I, I think the reason why she preached the sermon is, well, because the pastor's wife is also considered a, uh, uh, as a pastor at that church. And um, I'm playing it for a particular reason. And the reason is this, that what comes out of this woman's mouth doctrinally represents what I would consider a huge segment of what 
people in American evangelicalism believe the gospel's all about now. Um, it's about changing the world. And she doesn't really preach from a biblical text. Her sermon, and I'm trying to be gracious here, um, is really uh, the, the, the text for it is uh, Dickens' uh, Christmas Carol. And so, I mean, this is the equivalent. I, I see. Here's the deal. This is literally the biblical equivalent. Biblical. This is the equivalent of preaching from Aesop's Fables. Okay, despite the fact that the uh, the the story, you know, Dickens's Christmas Carol has become like a made has been woven into our Christmas lore in such a way that um, hardly a Christmas goes by without everybody watching it, you know, one rendition or another of that story. It's still not a biblical story. The real, the characters are not real. This is not a biography of anybody's particular life, even though the, uh, Dickens obviously had some inspiration for the different characters that he, uh, that he used. This is, um, so if you were to be preaching from, uh, Charles Dickinson's, a uh, Christmas, uh, Ter- Charles Dickinson's, Dickens, uh, uh, Christmas Carol, that's the equivalent of uh, preaching from Aesop's fables. I mean, that's like trying to do a biographical sketch on the uh, on the two characters in the uh, story of the tortoise and the hare or something. It's 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 just that bad. So, with the fact that this gal is not a normal pastrix or a teaching pastrix, and that she was really outside of her skill set, I'm not going to critique her harshly about the fact that the women shouldn't be pastors. I mean, that but that's biblically the case. And instead, I want to. Uh, listen with you and kind of point things out along the way of listen to the theology that she's that she's parroting back to uh, the congregation because where did she learn this she learned this from her pastors she learned this from popular evangelical culture she's this is she represents i think she's a great great um uh, you know marker for you know of where evangelical catechism and theology has landed and and, and so she represents i think uh, the vanilla, you know, everyday grassroots, basic American evangelical uh, layperson's view of what Christianity is. And so we'll be listening to that uh, in hour number two. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, make yourself comfortable. We're going to dive into the program proper. I've already waxed way too long on this segment, but uh, let me get to uh, the email here real quick. I've got an uh, email from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley from uh, Great Britain, Hanley Stoke-on-Trent. And uh, he's uh, written regarding Neil Cole's Movementum um, lecture, and uh, which was just crazy stuff. Um, so, you know, from time to time, you know, I'll put something weird and kind of off in the mix. Uh, just kind of, well, number one, to, you know, so that's not always the same when you're listening to Fighting for the Faith, but also to, so that you can hear what pastors are being taught. And so Neil Cole's, uh, you know, momentum lecture was one of those things. And uh, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley keyed in on one of the illustrations that Neil Cole gave in his momentum lecture. And here's what, um, uh, Pastor Charmley writes, he says, Dear Chris, Neil Cole's choice of illustration for his talk on movementum, not a real word, uh, was most infelicitous. That's a real word. Uh, for the fact, for the fact is that the Russian churches did not, as he put it, die. 
Apparently, the fellow is unaware that Russian orthodoxy now wields enormous power in the nation and unaware that during the communist era that there were many underground churches while the licensed churches were often full to burst the bursting point. I, I cannot at present locate my copy of the book entitled Among the Soviet Evangelicals from the 1980s, but the authors toured Russia and found many large and active churches. Mr. Cole is apparently unaware that Russia has been broadly Christian for over a thousand years, and that Russian evangelical churches were self-supporting and indigenous long, long before the communist era. A better example would have been Albania, which was an almost entirely Muslim nation, and where the evangelical church, though not the Catholics, did practically die. The mission was relatively young, and when uh, the communists took over and the dictator was more, more uh, was much more hardline atheist than any Russians were, indeed he declared at one point that Albania was the first completely atheist state, there were only a tiny handful of evangelical believers left when the nation reopened at the end of communism. But no, he chose Russia and thus revealed his utter ignorance. One simply cannot compare Russia where a form of Christianity was woven into the very fabric of the state with China, where Christianity was of relatively recent advent and the nation's life was bound up with an entirely different religion. And so he fails my third rule. If a speaker makes false historical claims, he has no idea what he is talking about. I happen to have trained with pastors from China and the former Soviet bloc, and I can tell you that there is no comparison between the two uh, the positions of the two. To say that Christianity died in Russia is a statement that is simply laughable. In the great name of our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. So apparently he has a third rule. I, okay, so there you go. You know, Pastor Charmley has several rules, third one being, you know, if a speaker f fails historical claims, he has no idea what he's talking about. So you, you don't want to be thrown under the Pastor Charmley's historical bus. I'm, you know, I'm just saying. Okay, let's see. What do I want to do at the moment here? Okay, I, I got to make a decision and, well, I've made the decision. Here we go. You know, I feel like I'm overdosing this week on XP Media videos. Okay, so uh, there's a gal who uh, does a channel on Extreme Prophetic's website, and um, and let's just put it this way: uh, she is, along with Patricia King, has decided to chime in about the apparent prophetic words being spoken regarding an upcoming uh, food shortage. And well, here's the deal: she's apparently had a dream about this. Okay, so so that proves that there is, um, you know, an upcoming food shortage. By the way, her name is Julie Meyer, and you can uh, find this at xpmedia.com. Just type in Julie Meyer, and the name of it is a dream about food shortage. Or you can visit her website, juliemeyer.com. So apparently, it's like now a chorus of people at uh, Extreme Prophetic's website telling us about an upcoming food shortage, but she knows it's true because she had a dream about it. So uh, let's find out the details of this dream so we can all, you know, glean the relevant information. Here we go. Hi, my name is Julie Meyer, and I'm from the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, Missouri. 
And I want to talk to you about today just about a question that I've been asked over and over. Should we be storing up food and water? And I actually had never thought about it. You can feel a spirit of fear in the earth right now. You can? Man, I haven't felt it. Maybe I'm just hanging out in the wrong places, you know? Um, I, 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 apparently, I don't get out much. Okay, you know, so here's the deal. I spend a lot of my time reading, uh, researching, you know, doing production work for the station, you know, things like that. And uh, and so, but I, I, several times a week, I do get out, you know, from time to time, I'll go to the gym um, or, you know, I'll go to the grocery store or, or I'm working on a do-it-yourself uh, fix-it project here in the house. And uh, and so um, on those occasions, you know, I, I get out to either Walmart or Lowe's or Home Depot or or even Menards, one of my favorite um, uh, <laughs> supp- uh, supply stores. But anyway, um, that being the case, um, you know, recently, you know, I'm trying to think back over the last month. You know, okay, been in Menards, yeah, uh, Lowe's, yeah, um, Walmart, uh huh, yeah. Um, I even had a haircut. Uh, I, yeah, I did. I, I got my haircut. It um, and um, I do that. I, you know what's funny about my haircutting? Um, I try to push that out as far as humanly possible. Um, I about the about every six seven weeks is about as long as I can go before my wife starts making references to the Wolfman, um, or worse. Um, you know, I start. I suffer from like you know Fred Flintstone neck. Anyway. Um, so I have to go and get the haircut done, but I'm just trying to think. Okay, Walmart and in uh, you know the haircutting, um, mm-hmm, yeah. I never, I no, I can't say that I've felt anything about some kind of spirit of fear. Didn't in the conversations I had with people, it never came up. So, yeah, not sure what she's talking about. We continue. And the thing that I want to encourage people with, especially you know believers, is that we were born. We were created for such a time as this. We were created to be the deliverers, the Daniels and the Josephs of the earth. I I really. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, um, I'm, I'm just not with you here. I, you know, listen, I seriously doubt that I was born to be a deliverer. I'm seriously doubting that I was born to be a Daniel. Um, I was just born to be Chris, you know, um, and just do what, what, what Chris does. Yeah. I believe this, but I hadn't thought much about, you know, storing up food and water because it can have this fear thing on it, but I had a dream. Oh, yeah. Well, see, that just changes everything. And I had a dream one night that my pastor uh, was preaching from the pulpit and he was saying... This would be Mike Bickle at IHOP, you know. Um, do you feel the rhythm, the rhythm of heaven? Um, uh, everyone needs to store up uh, survival food. Mm. And he's in the dream. He said, you can get this food at Costco for $146. Wow. That's quite a detailed dream. 146 bucks for uh, survival food. Okay. And then Do they have a survival food pack that they're sending it, selling at Costco. I, you know, see, that's the thing. My wife and I are members of Sam's club and, and I don't get to Costco very often. In fact, I, I haven't been there in years, but um, do, do you th- do you think Sam's Club would sell the survival um, food for cheaper than Costco? In the dream, uh, he walked up to me and he said, "Julie, you're gonna need enough for four. Ah, and that was the dream. Wow, that's just amazing. 
and I woke up from the dream and since I'm a dreamer I mean I'm taking him serious I want to say I was not scared I was not fearful well I'm, I'm glad that you didn't experience fear yeah but I just started thinking okay I just started saying Lord what are you saying you're telling me to get survival food yeah why are you assuming that God was talking to you in that dream um, how do you know that the source wasn't like you know diabolical or something so I actually believe that dreams have many layers I went to the website for Costco. There was nothing on sale for $146. But as I was looking on the website, the Lord spoke to me and said, go to Psalms 146. Wow. Okay. So the, so the price of the food at Costco was actually a veiled reference to Psalm 146. Okay. And I turned to Psalms 146. I want to read it. And it says, happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, yeah. whose hope is in the Lord is God, right. who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed low. The Lord loves the righteous. Okay, yeah, that's great and all. Um, so the question I have is, um, do you think that Psalm 146 was written about an upcoming food shortage? You know, because um, I'm not seeing that in the text. And I, I, I remember reading, you know, Psalms 149, and I, I started just asking the Lord, you know, what exactly are you saying? And I knew. Uh, so see, he, see, the Lord wasn't saying what he said in the words that you can understand. There was a secret meaning to these words that she was trying to get at. Not what the words meant in context, not, you know, what was supposed to be understood, you know, you know maybe when you read this 2,000 years ago, um, you know, which would be a lot closer to when it was originally penned. But no, there's a secret meaning that this text is referring to something to do with um, an upcoming food shortage. Who knew? And see, that's the problem, don't you think? Um, at this point, we're just ignoring what the text says and asking God to reveal in our hearts the real hidden meaning behind these passages. Uh-huh. That for me, he was saying, go buy survival food. Right, because that's what Psalm 146 is all about. It's all about you going and buying survival food. And so uh, when I began praying about my dream, the Lord just spoke to my heart and said, get four months worth. For, and we did. My husband and I, we went to Costco. Uh, we got uh, four months worth of survival food. Because when I started thinking about this psalm, uh, happy is he was the God of Jacob for his help. It's a psalm of deliverance. Right, which means you need to be delivered from the upcoming food shortage. So that's what God was really secretly trying to communicate in this passage. Notice anything wrong with the way she's reading the Bible? You should. This is not how you are supposed to read the scriptures. And how, how, we're the deliverers of the earth. I really believe that. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Yeah, you're the deliverer of the earth. Not Jesus, you are. <laughs> yeah, that sounds backwards, upside down, and inside out. I was talking with one of my friends, and she has a, a church in Detroit, and she said her uh, missionaries that they support were right at the epicenter of the Japan uh, you know, tsunami, but because they had 
food and water, they were able to be deliverers. They were able to help in Japan. I talked with people uh, that were in at the Joplin, Missouri. The same thing. The Lord had put on their heart months earlier to, to get some water. Just keep some water in your basement. And they- Which, by the way, um, funny, I, when I lived in Southern California, true, I mean, uh, when I lived in Southern California, um, they kept warning us, you know, listen, the San Andreas fault is like overdue. It's late. It, you know, it's, it's like a woman who's pregnant and in her 10th month of pregnancy. Okay. That thing is about ready to give birth to an eight or nine earthquake. And so they were telling us and, and see, this wasn't the Holy spirit. This was just like, you know, on commercials, you know, Hey, if you don't have a, you know, a clean, uh, a supply of clean water, when that San Andreas goes, you're not going to have any food. You're not going to have any water to drink. You're, you need to store up food and water in case the San Andreas decides to you know, do its thing. And funny enough, living here in Indiana, I mean, when we get into tornado season, they warn us. They basically tornadoes are indiscriminate things, and you need to have you know you need to be you have to have supplies in case of an emergency. Weird, you know. It's just, the world's kind of a dangerous place, and it might be a smart idea to have a few things set aside in case of an emergency. But Psalm 146 doesn't teach this. They were able to be the ones to hand out water. And and what I say about this is it's not to promote fear, but if the Lord is putting this on your heart, then do it because you... Mm-hmm. Yeah, how heavy would it be if it was put on my heart? Um, You know... Is my is my heart like, you know, does it have little pigeonholes where God can, like, leave secret messages for me? By the way, how come you didn't, uh, when your friend told you about the, the people in Japan and, and, uh, and Joplin that had given, you know, away their food supplies to, and to help delivered people, how come you didn't look for the, uh, the, the secret spiritual meaning in the words that she spoke to you, the way you treat the Bible? Why is it that you take your friend's words, you know, like at face value, but you don't do that with the Bible? Weird. Will be God will use those who listen to His word. He's going to use us to be deliverers. We are the Daniels. We are the Josephs, and simply do what He tells you to do. Mm-hmm. Delusions of grandeur. Okay, I've heard have heard enough of Julie. Okay, so yeah, that kind of demonstrates something seriously wrong in the way she reads the Bible. We don't take the Bible literally. <laughs> no. Psalm 46, I guarantee you, if you read it in the Hebrew, if you read it backwards, if you read it upside down, put it in a mirror. If you were to take the word, stick it in a blender, you know, and finally, will it blend? Uh, you know, put it all back together again. No matter what you do, even if you were to go out and get cosmic peepers, you know, some kind of seeing stone, stick them in a hat, and then, you know, and then put the hat over your face and begin to look at the biblical text with, you know, looking for the green translucent spiritual letters in between the letters. Um, you still would not be able to make Psalm 146 say anything about um, storing up food. That's not what the text is communicating at all. Don't believe me? Just read it. Yep. Cut out the subjectivizing weird stuff and just look at the text. Let the words speak for themselves. It doesn't say anything about saving up food for an upcoming food shortage. Yeah. So anyway, and I'll stand on that. You know, this is just unbelievable. Weird this.
It's a problem. That's the way people are reading the Bible. And more and more people are reading the Bible this way. And as a result of it, they have no clue what the Bible really says. You you come away from an experience like that going, oh, yeah, Psalm 146. That's the passage about storing up food. No, it's not. (sighs) Anyway. Um, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've uh, heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. When he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. Python's Flying Circus Church. And now presenting for your listening pleasure, Majestic Mystery by Brian McLaren, read by Reginald Bumper Scatter. Oh, Majestic Mystery. Oh, mysterious majesty, my small hand can never grasp you. I can only hold it open. I don't like this at all. majestic mystery. I think I'm going to be sick. Oh, mysterious. He's saying words, but I'm not even sure it's English. Ah, my appendix just turned inside out. Someone help that poor man and call the paramedics. What's all this then? That poor man appendix is just turned inside out. Well, that doesn't sound good. It's not every day that people appendixes do that. What was he doing? Listening to the emergent poet on stage. He didn't tell me there was emergent poetry being read. Right. Everybody evacuate the building immediately. Here come the Navy SEALs. What seems to be the trouble? Somebody in that building is reading emergent poetry. Have you set up a soundproof perimeter? No, I haven't had time. Oh, we can't help you then. What do you mean you can't help us? Too dangerous. Too dangerous? Don't get cheeky with me. You've seen but a small taste of emergent poetry's destructive power. It only gets worse with each passing stanza. Game over, dude. Game over. Quick, get that man into quarantine. His soul's been sucked out from his nostrils. Isn't that? Anything you can do to help that poor man? Afraid not. The only answer we have now is to nuke the site from orbit. I can only hold it open. 
Search the area and make sure no one's hiding in the refrigerator. We can't have any survivors. It's been nice serving with you, Chief. Likewise. Can't believe the world's come to this. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, when you're constantly looking for the secret message in the Bible rather than reading the one that's right there in the words, you like hamstring yourself and make it impossible to understand what the Bible really says. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. And as you as we get close to the end of the year here, uh, and you, you're considering your year-end giving, would you also uh, support Fighting for the Faith with your year-end giving and contributions? Uh, you can do that by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 on a monthly basis to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And very shortly, we will be announcing our uh, ebook Christmas gift to all of our crew members. And, uh, and uh, you know, stay tuned. We'll be talking about that soon. Uh, but, uh, of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana. Zip code 46038, or you can just click on the donate button on our website. And thank you, thank you, thank you for your support and making it possible for us to keep doing what we love doing here at Fighting for the Faith. Okay, moving along. um, Yeah, I I guess I need to do this. Hold on a second. Yeah, you can't do a news story without our news music. From the Keith Craft... Dot, uh, KeithCraftBlog.com. Um, the name of it is The Principle of Process That Leads to Your Promise. <laughs> okay, this is what I was warning you about earlier. The popular level leadership that isn't leadership at all. I mean, this is just gibberish. Okay, <clears throat> feast your ears on this. Okay, Keith Craft writes, he says, It is the evening of December 1st, 2011. Most people would say it's too late to send a blog out, but I am attempting to seize the moment. 2011 has been an extreme year of process for most people. As we grow into December and then into 2012, I wanted to write blog a little about a principle of life that none of us like, process. Okay. 
When we talk about process, what exactly does it mean? Process, a proceeding or moving forward, a progressive, a progressive course, gradual progress, methodological management, a seasonal approach to growth, a principle-centered approach to change that empowers any change to make people, places, and things change for the better. Okay, so a process then is not just what you go through, but it's what you grow through. So, <clears throat> so here's a quote from his leadershipology um, book. Quote, if you grow through what you go through, you create your breakthrough to your next level. Yeah, again, let me read that. See if it makes any sense. If you grow through what you go through, you create your breakthrough to your next level. We have the ability to make our process work for us and not just work through the process. Process is a principle because we are going to be in some kind of process for the rest of our lives. I hope that whatever process you are involved in right now will work for your good. The bottom line is only you can make that happen. My goal in this blog and maybe for a few after it is to give you some insight about process and how you can use whatever process for your benefit and help benefit others in the process. This guy thinks that he's he's found profundity, and it's it actually it's it's called absurdity. This is the oh man. So if you grow through what you go through, you create your breakthrough to your next level. So here's another quote from his leadershipology book: "Quote: There is no more important lesson to learn in life than life is a process. What you learn through your process will determine all your progress in every area of your life." I mean, seriously. I mean, is it me or does it just sound like he's ta he's he's putting words and writing them in a circle? So you're sitting there spinning, going, "Oh wow, this is deep. This is." I mean, I'm, I mean, even fortune cookies make more sense than this. Anyway, uh, let's see here. So, uh, so I want to leave you with one last thought. Okay, hold on. I missed a process here. Any process we go through can become our teacher if we will choose to grow through it. Any person, place, or thing you experience has the power to become your teacher and help you learn life lessons uh, that are only yours to learn. You can go through or grow through life, but you will choose to grow through your process. There will be nothing that can break that you cannot break through on on your to your next level. Uh huh. So he wants to leave us with a, a final thought. So here here we go. If you, if you if I were to ask you if you have potential, what would you say? Um, he, of course, is what I would hope you would say. Well, potential to do what? Potential. I mean, I have some potential to do certain things, and I have no potential to do anything else. I mean, potential is kind of a broad topic, don't you think? So if I were to ask you, uh, do you feel you have been untapped? Untapped? Like a keg? So uh, I have potential like a keg, and I need to be tapped? Is that what you're asking? <laughs> so if I were to ask you, if you uh, do you feel you have untapped potential, I'm sure that most people would say, well, absolutely. So then if I were to ask you why, what would you say? Because um, I, I don't know. I have no idea what I'd say because I don't even know what you're talking about. There would be a plethora of answers to the why question for sure. So what I want to show you is what I believe is vital for you reaching your full God-given potential. In the triangle below, you see potential to the left of the triangle. The right side of the triangle is blank. 
And the top of the triangle is promise. So I believe that there are promises attached to your potential that unless you understand how to reach your untapped potential, you'll never receive the promises that ultimately God has for you. So what is it that keeps our potential from being reached in the promises that God has for us? Um, Keith? As somebody who has a graduate degree in leadership, um, I can tell you this. Um, your leadershipology um, is leadership heresy. It's it's like leadership. It's not even leadership light. Um, it's neither right nor wrong. It's it it doesn't actually meet the minimum threshold of actually being a coherent thought that means anything that could be deemed either right or wrong. This isn't helpful in any way whatsoever because um, you obviously um, don't know what you're talking about. And I'm beginning to be convinced that uh, your ability to think lucidly and communicate lucid thoughts um, has, well, unfortunately, been sunk to the bottom of the mariachi trench. That's right, you're listening to the sounds of the Mariachi Trench as they celebrate meeting their untapped potential by potentially untapping it so that they can break through to their next level. And of course, everybody knows that they did this via the process that they had to grow through in order to go through, to break through to that next level in order to untap all of their God-given potential, uh, which is promised to us in the promises. All right, we're done. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, so, yeah. Um, the fact that Keith Craft is held up as a leader among leaders within the seeker-driven movement and that he's been asked to speak at uh, different leadership conferences troubles me greatly that uh, in the future that um, uh, more and more seeker-driven leaders will be unable to actually think lucid thoughts and will think that their profundities um, actually rise to the level of something that should be passed along to people when it shouldn't, because I'm beginning to think that this is the type of stuff that actually, rather than create thought, destroys it. This is act, you know, because in you know, in the, in the universe they have matter and antimatter, and when the two meet together, there's a big explosion and then nothing exists. I'm beginning to think that, the, well, Keith Craft is the purveyor of anti-thought. And that all of that stuff that he puts together, once it actually come in, comes in contact with real thought, well, there's a small minor explosion, like something like that. And at the end of it, there's just nothing. No, yeah, no nothing. Um, yeah, at that time, it's time to take the, sh the uh, horse out to pasture and probably shoot it. Okay. <laughs> I, oh, man. Moving along. All right. Yesterday, I mentioned this in passing, but I didn't read it. And I should read it because I said I was going to read it. But uh, the, the reason why I hesitate is because I agree with some of the stuff in this article. There's some actually some pretty good thoughts. And the reason why it bothers me that I agree with some of the thoughts in this article is because of where it's published. <clears throat> the Huffington Post. Anyway, the, the name of the uh, op-ed piece is How to Shrink Your Church. It's written by a guy by the name of Tim Suttle, who, well, he claims to be a pastor, writer, and a musician. Okay. Usually pastor, writer, musicians who write for the Huffington Post, I don't find myself agreeing with, like, anything that they say. 
But unfortunately, I found some stuff in here that I thought was worth passing along. So I'm going to pass it along quite begrudgingly at that, too. But anyway, um, uh, Tim Settle writes, he says, Pastors and churches spend hundreds of millions of dollars each year attending conferences, buying books, hiring consultants, advertisers, and marketers, all to try and accomplish one thing, to increase attendance and to be a bigger church. I'm absolutely convinced that this is the wrong tact. I agree. Um, success is a slippery subject when it comes to the church. That our ultimate picture of success is a crucified Messiah means any conversation about success will be, incomp- be incompatible with a bigger is better mentality. Yet bigger and better is exactly what most churches seem to be pursuing these days, a pursuit which typically comes in the form of sentimentality and pragmatism. Just be it known that I agree with him at this point, and it irks me. So we continue. Sentimentality and pragmatism are the are the one-two punch which has the American church on the ropes. With a general uh, generation of church leader acquiesces to the demands of our consumer culture, the demands are simple. Tell me what will make me feel better, sentimentality for the churchgoer, and tell me something that will work, pragmatism for the church leader. Yet it is not clear how either one of those are part of what it means to be the church. Good point. Sentimentality is mother's milk to the church, which has ceased to believe our faith should really make a difference in the way we live our lives. Instead of proclaiming resurrection, the the sentimental church will devote their entire Sunday worship service to Mother's Father's Day, or worse, Valentine's Day. Not that we don't appreciate our parents and sweethearts, but the yielding of the precious worship time to the celebration of greeting card company signals a much deeper problem. We have lost track of the story of God, yet for a church to grow bigger, losing track of the story is precisely what is required. Another great point. Yeah, you'll notice that uh, Tim Suttle, uh, who wrote for the Huff- wrote this for the Huffington Post, is making far more sense than um, Keith Kraft. Mm-hmm. It's frightening me. Anyway, uh, instead of pursuing faithfulness, the sentimental church must provide a place where people can come to hear a comforting message from an effusive pastor spouting fervent one-liners, which are intended only to make us feel good about the decisions that we've already made with our lives. Right. If our beliefs aren't actually really true, then at least we can have a hallmark moment, right? Above all, the sentimental church must never teach us that in the kingdom of God, Uh, Up is down and in is out and nothing short of dying to ourselves and each other can truly help us. Man, he's making sense. Uh, More than, (laughs) perhaps more than sentimentality, pragmatism is ravaging the church. Pragmatism has led to a fairly new niche industry I call the church leadership culture. Yeah, it's it's an industry, all right? The church leadership industry. It's a full-blown industry. Taking their cues from business, church leadership manuals are more than willing to instruct the interested pastor in how to gain market share. I once heard church consultant and leadership guru Don Cousins say that you can grow a church without God if you have good preaching, great music, killer children's ministry, and engaging youth minister. Really, you can grow a church without God. <laughs> no God needed. Yeah, okay. Uh, so Cousins should know uh, he helped build Willow Creek Community Church... <laughs> <laughs> and the church leadership culture in the pragmatic church, there's only one question that matters. What will work to grow my church? The fundamental problem with the one-two punch of sentimentality and pragmatism is, of course, the 
Church's job is not to affirm people's lives, but to allow the gospel to continually call our lives into question. Uh, The church's job is not to grow, not even to survive. The church's job is to die continually on behalf of the world, believing that with every death there is a resurrection. Now notice here, (laughs) I found something I disagree with him. Oh, finally. Okay, notice he's... um, there's a he's turned death and resurrection into a metaphor, but in some senses it still uh, applies. So God's part is to grow whatever God wishes to grow. Growing a church isn't hard. Being faithful as the church, well, that's a different story. So there you go. I, I'll end right there. But Tim Settle has pointed out rather astutely that there's a big problem in the church. And it has to do with pragmatism and sentimentality. This is a one-two punch that is actually antithetical to what God has called the church to believe, preach, teach, confess, and do. And he's right. So, anyway, I just want to let everybody know that uh, I had to read that under protest. And it irks me that, um, that there's not a growing number of people who actually are conservative who have figured this out yet. Yeah, yeah, the fact that the Huffington Post has got this right, um, it, it, <laughs> this is a curse. This is an out, flat out curse. And just, I just want to let everybody know that. That's how I feel, and uh, I don't many times talk about my feelings, but since it's the Huffington Post, it's appropriate to talk about my feelings. And I'm irked. I'm irked that there's people who write for the Huffington Post who have more insight and honest criticism that's valid regarding what's going on in conservative churches than conservative leaders are willing to face face up to and fess up to. Maybe they, if they'd learn how to grow through their growth process through the promise of the Mariachi Trench, they wouldn't have this problem. <clears throat> so there. Okay. Um, <laughs> we're up on our second break. I'm going to go calm down for a second. <laughs> See if I can get off the roof here, and uh, and then we'll do our sermon review when we come back. And this, uh, the, the have the uh, Tim Settle's op-ed piece ringing in your ear as we get ready to go into this sermon review, which I think represents sentimentality and pragmatism all too well, and demonstrates what's really wrong in American evangelicalism. You're not going to want to miss the sermon review. We'll be right back. If you'd like to. Uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some...
keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. Fighting for the Faith, we are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via City of Grace, which is in the Mesa, Arizona, Scottsdale, Scottsdale area. The name of the sermon is Sometimes It Takes a Visitation, and um, it's preached by a woman who runs a like an art studio. I think it's like theater arts, music, dance, singing, you know, things like that, acting. And uh, her name is Joni Castillo. Okay, now, I, I'm i just going to mention this. She should not have been preaching. Okay? Number one, she's just not qualified um, on any level. She's not somebody who's been to seminary, she doesn't know the biblical languages, she's not well catechized, and she's a she. So she's got everything going against her. That being the case, I'm not going to emphasize the fact that she shouldn't even be in the pulpit. This will be the only mention of that during the sermon review. But what I want you to listen for is listen for what she thinks Christianity is. The text that she's going to be preaching from is Charles Dickens' um, Christmas Carol. which is really, really problematic. But So what you're going to be listening to at this point is a sermon delivered by a laywoman, and it'll show you what it is that the average layperson in American evangelicals, megachurches, believes. It ain't biblical. It isn't the biblical do- gospel. It's This is not Christianity. This is pragmatic sentimentality. To use the huffing put. Huffington Post's categories, if you would, which still irks me. I just I want I want everyone to know I'm irked about that. So, without any further ado, let's uh, kill the music. Uh, here is Joni Castillo and her sermon entitled "Sometimes It Takes a Visitation." Here we go. 
Glad to have you here this morning. Can we give a, a round of applause for the cast and crew that have worked so hard to bring this to us today? I couldn't be prouder of them. Most of them, this is their very first to do anything at all like this. So it's, it's exciting for me to see them get up and do this. How many of you are familiar with the Christmas Carol, the story? Have you seen it before? Yeah, awesome. I don't know if you realize that that story was actually written back in 1843. So it's been around a long time. I think it's probably one of the most famous Christmas stories around, actually. It was the first, actually, of five books that were published by Charles Dickens. I don't even actually know what the other four were. I'm sure they were good. Uh, but this is the one that has notoriety and is known around the world. For those of you that might not be familiar with it, the two or three of you in the house, uh, it's actually, I'm going to give you a little quick synopsis. It's a story about this man who's uh, mean and miserly, as we just saw in the depiction. His only interest is in making money. He has no interest in religion. He has no interest in any kind of celebration particularly Christmas. He has a special offense with that. Um, but what we find out as we go through the story is that Scrooge actually has an encounter that causes him to change his life. And what we realize is that it, it really is never too light, late for a life to be changed. It all begins one Christmas Eve when uh, Jacob Marley, his dead partner, comes back to forewarn him of the decisions that he's making and the path that it may create for him. And just a little disclaimer here, I'm not advocating that your dead co-workers come back help you, you know, with your situations in your life. That is not, we're going to move beyond that part of the story into the main point of what it is. And so Jacob Marley, actually when we see him, he's uh, got chains all over him. And what we realize is... Notice this is really the equivalent of preaching from Aesop's fables. Somehow this is supposed to convey a Christian message at a Christian church, because this is the sermon time. We've got a big problem. Listen carefully to the theology. He had an experience that made a difference and changed his life. Okay. Is it those chains? Every one of those links portrays something in his life or someone in his life that he didn't grab hold of the opportunity to bless them or love them or value them. And so he's been doomed and, and sentenced to carry these chains around the earth and roam all, for all eternity. So he's come back to his colleague to warn him, you know, you need to realize that your business is not about money like we thought it was. Your business is about humanity. And so what he says is, I'm going to send three spirits to you tonight to help you see the air of your ways. And so he sends them. And so the whole story is about this intervention into Scrooge's life where he is set free and his eyes are open to the things that he is allowed to dictate the steps of his life that were not the right way to go. And it reminds me of the Christmas story very much the same thing. God looked down on us as mankind and saw the mistakes that we were making. The reality is we didn't know how to navigate our life. And so, <clears throat> so uh, the Christmas story is God showing us how to navigate our life. Oh, man. This, this is bad.
our life. And so Jesus came in the form of a child, of a baby, to extend hope and redemption to us that our life might be turned around, that mankind might be given a second chance. And so today what I would like to do is look at the story of... Whoa, 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 whoa. So that mankind might be given a second chance. See, that's not the gospel, that you, you receive a second chance. Because even if you receive a second chance, it's still up to you to get it right the second time. That's not the gospel. The gospel teaches us that Christ died for our sins. He was the spotless, sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who got it right the first time. And his getting it right the first time is imputed to you as if you're the one who got it right. And your sins are imputed to him as if he's the one who committed him. That's why he's on the cross, suffering for your place, suffering in your place, suffering for your sins, for your transgressions. Yeah, see this you know, this Christmas story giving us a second chance? <clears throat> it's not what the Christmas story is about. It's about God with us to die for us. And here's the deal. I fault her, I fault Joni Castillo less than I fault her pastors. Why? She's a layperson. She's just believing what she's being told. But she's not being taught the truth. And so here she is parroting back the bad theology that she's been taught year in and year out. And what does she think Christianity is? Well, in the, in the Christmas story, it's all about Jesus coming to earth and so that we can all have a second chance, so we can get it right the second time. It's This is just absolutely tragic. This is what it means for the blind to lead the blind and then both to end up in a pit. It came to visit him and look at it through the lens of the gift given us in Christ so that we can look and see what God has to say to us that we might even be reintroduced to our Father who is the God of hope. Will you go on that journey with me? Cool, awesome. Well, the first thing that happens is, well, let me say this first. Um, you know, Scrooge, as we realize, has a lot of pain in his life. And uh, the past is what's caused that for him. He has allowed his past to um, affect him so drastically that it changes the decisions that he makes. And this is what happens as we go into the story. And I'm going to have you say this with me. The Christmas, the ghost of Christmas past comes to say this. It's never too late to be set free from your past. Can you say that with me? It's never too late to be set free from your past. As I said, Scrooge was a byproduct of his. Never too late to get set free from your past. Kind of gospelish, because here's the deal. Each and every one of us is born dead in trespasses and sins. And when you read Romans chapter 6, it makes it clear that sin is slavery. It's not freedom. It's slavery. It's slavery to sin, death, and the devil. Okay? So Christ does come to set us free from our slavery to sin, death, and the devil. Okay? So there is a theme that's similar to this in Scripture. But the problem is, is that she's off. She's not really in the groove here of what it is that Scripture teaches regarding slavery to sin. 
And watch what she does here. I mean, number one, she's telling the story of Scrooge as if he's a real guy. Um, I hate to break it to you. Scrooge is a fictitious character. Um, but on top of it, she's um, at this point, the way she's telling the story, he's a victim of his past. He, see, he was victimized, and so that's why he victimized. No, Scrooge, if he was a real person, is a perp. And he's a sinner, born dead in trespasses and sins, and bearing fruit in in accordance with his slavery to sin, death, and the devil. So, yes, you know, here here's the deal. Each and every one of us sins because we're a sinner by nature. We all have inherited a corrupted, sinful nature. That's why we sin. The reason you are a sinner is not because you commit sins. Sin is a disease that you have tested positive for and which you began testing positive for the moment you were conceived. Okay? So you even if you were to not commit a single sin uh, on you know in your lifetime, you would still be guilty of Adam and Eve's sin because you've inherited their corruption. You are corrupted. You test positive for the disease. So you are a sinner whether or not you commit an actual sin in your life because you've inherited that sinful nature, that corruption from Adam and Eve. You've tested positive for the disease known as sin. So here we've got a, a, a bad, shallow misunderstanding of what sin is, and it's not going to get any better from here. Let's continue. Set free from your past. Can you say that with me? It's never too late to be set free from your past. As I said, Scrooge was a byproduct of his past. Probably more accurately, he was a byproduct of the decisions and the responses that he had to the heartaches and hurts in his past. He was rejected by his father. You know what? Notice the psychologizing of his sin. He's a, he's a victim, you know. Poor guy. Poor Scrooge. He's just a byproduct of his past. He's been victimized. If he was a real person, no, he's a wretched sinner. It happens a lot. Do you guys like read the books or you just go watch the movie? Yeah, I just kind of go watch the movie. But because we were doing this, I was forced to read the book. And I'm so, yeah, you know. But I was so glad that I was because I began to see Scrooge in a new light. How often do you look at people or situations and circumstances and you make judgments about who they are based on what you see right before you? Like, boy, they're really nasty. I don't think I'm hanging out with them anymore. You know, it's cause just because of who they are. What we don't realize is sometimes what's happened in their past that has caused them to arrive at the place that they are now. Maybe even in that day, maybe normally they're a really nice person and something has happened in the day that has caused them to, to be reactive or maybe not as kind as they would be otherwise. This is exactly what happens with Scrooge. And not until I read the book did I fully understand this. Because as we look back and the, the ghost of Christmas past takes him to his past, he is faced uh, with his what's happened in his, in his past. Hey, let's say that one more time, past. Um, <laughs> Are we all clear that we're in the past? Just want to make sure. You know, you, it takes repetition to get these things, I'm told. So Scrooge arrives, and he's at his childhood in a boarding house, which was not necessarily a bad thing. Many kids uh, went to school at a boarding house. What made his situation unique was that at Christmas time, most people went home to be with their families. Just like now, Christmas break is coming up. You take a break, you go, you spend time with family and friends and enjoy them. For Scrooge, he was left at the boarding house to spend Christmas alone, having only the companions from his stories and his books 
there for him. And the reason was, was because at childbirth, his mother had died and his father blamed him for her death. And so as a little boy, he held the weight of that and was left alone. So he was faced with that rejection. And then he's taken on to another place in his life where he's faced with his fiance. Yes, Scrooge actually had a fiance at one point. Somebody actually was willing to marry him and he didn't take advantage. Um, so he had gone to see her. And what happened is just like a lot of times happen, you know, we're going to get married. He wanted to have a livelihood before they said their I do's. And so he started working hard. Poverty was huge in this era and during this time. And so he wanted to create a, you know, a nest egg for them. Well, with good intentions, he started down this road and then he became preoccupied with the making of money and the position and the power that surrounded him. And he got to that would be idolatry, the sin of idolatry. Got distracted, and what ended up happening is that he chose money, position, power over love. So as Scrooge is faced with all of these things, he has to um, look at himself differently. His eyes begin to be opened by the experience. And I know that there are probably many of you here today that this season also brings back painful memories for you as well. And I want to say to you that this was not is how it was intended to be. This is why Jesus came 2,000 years ago. It's because he cared about what was going in, on in your life. He came to restore hope. He came to bring you the answers that you lack, even in the situations that you are facing right now. I wrote this in my notes. God broke into our world to rescue us from the pain and the hurt of this world. Not quite right. You got any verses that say that? Because um, that's not what I read in Scripture. Christ came to earth to die on the cross for our sins and rise again from the dead. Got anything for that? You know. Part of this world. This is what Jesus came for. He's a light that came to dispel darkness. In fact, the Scripture says that Jesus is the light of the world. He's like a lighthouse that when storms come and ships are lost at sea, he is the light that navigates them through to safety. Just as the lighthouse does that for the boat, so Jesus came to do the same thing for us. Even the star of Bethlehem that came to announce the coming of Christ, that light was used to direct the steps of the shepherds, the steps of the wise men. In fact, to direct our steps as mankind to the answer to our needs, to the second chance that we need in humanity. Yikes. She really believes that Jesus is all about giving us a second chance. If that's true, then we're all damned because each and every one of us would squander a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance on into infinity. We'd never get it right. This isn't the gospel. It sounds gospel-ish, but notice the sentimentality from a very pragmatic church. It's, it's just, it's, this is tragic. She doesn't know what the Christian faith is. She doesn't really even know. She doesn't understand the gospel is so much better good news than what it is that she's preaching here. Man. ...need in humanity. We see that Jesus cares. We believe that Jesus cares. I know that he cares about our past. And in Isaiah 61, it says this. 
The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness the prisoners. You see, Scrooge was a prisoner to his past. He had been chained to the bitterness and unforgiveness in his heart. He had allowed it, in fact, to take over his heart. You know, I think of it this way. You know, I don't know if you realize this. If there's someone that's done something in your life and you're mad about it and you don't want to forgive them, most likely they don't even know. The reality is you're the one that's experiencing the pain from unforgiveness. You are the one being bound. It's like it takes like a rock. It's I think of those things, you know, chain and throw you in the water and it drags you down. It's the same type of thing. It's like you've been chained to this thing that you're not willing to let go because you're going to not let them get away with it. That has nothing to do with it. It's what's keeping you from the destiny that God has for you to launch out. And when you forgive what happens, that chain that is holding you, it's like God goes like this and then you are catapulted to the future that God has for you. The, the I- mm, Okay, yeah, so we do something and then we're catapulted to the future God has to it for us. <sighs> yeah, this is a purpose-driven false gospel. Oh, man, this is sad. Launch out into the fullness of what God has provided for you. So I say, people, forgive and let go so that you can move on into the fullness of what God has for you. The other thing I realize is when we have unforgiveness in our heart, sometimes we build a wall that separates us because we're not going to let people get close to us again. It's kind of what happened with Scrooge. He had been hurt. Things had happened. Okay, I'm done. I don't want people getting too close because when I let them close, they hurt me. So I'm going to build a wall. And what he didn't realize is that when you build a wall, you not only separate yourself from the hurt as you think, you also separate yourself from the people through which God is going to use to bring hope and healing and restoration to your life. So that what he thought he was building to protect himself was also keeping him from the answer that he needed to be able to move on into his life. It's like he had allowed his heart to die. He had built a cage around him. Nobody's coming in. I'm just going to die in myself right now. And I wrote this in my notes. Sometimes it takes a visitation to see a resurrection. Sometimes you need a visitation of God for your eyes to be open so that you can awaken to what's happening in your life. So notice, um, yeah, okay, yeah, so resurrection here is not referring to Jesus's resurrection, but your life being resurrected so that you can have a second chance and so that you can experience the great big thing that God wants to do in your life. Oh boy. ...of God for your eyes to be open so that you can awaken to what's happening in your life and move forward. The second time the ghost of Christmas passed, that's who came. It's never too late to embrace your present. Will you say that with me? It's never too late to embrace your present. You got any verses that say that? Any, what, what verses would you point me to about the importance of embracing my presence? A present. <laughs> what was actually happening in his life re- right then? The reality of what was going. How often do you sometimes think you got you got a handle on what's going on in your life, and then people around you tell you it's a little bit different than what you think it is? 
Oh, no, no, no. I, I've got this handled. Oh, no, 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 you don't. This is exactly what the spirit of Christmas present was coming to do, to help him to see it in a different perspective, to see it through the eyes of someone else. And so what he does is he takes him to, uh, who, who better to help you see the truth is who you hang out with, his, his uh, employee, Bob Cratchit, who was the one who did all his clerking for him. So he arrives in his household. They are very destitute and poor because Scrooge is a miser. You know, it's the minimal that he can get away with paying. He expects lots of hours, and you're not getting anything for it. And this is kind of the way he treated uh, Bob Cratchit. Well, he arrives at his home. They've got a very meager meal, and they're celebrating. There's joy. They're laughing. They're enjoying one another. And Scrooge is dumb. Just a reminder, this story is not found in the Bible. Just want to let you all know that. They're enjoying one another, and Scrooge is dumbfounded. Because for him, it was all about the money and the position. How could they be laughing and having joy when they had nothing on their table? And what else is they had a child that was sickly, Tiny Tim, who was crippled and and was actually facing death at that point because they could not afford the care that he needed. Next, he's transported to the house of his, his nephew, Fred who is actually the daughter of his younger uh, sister, who has invited him to come to his house to fellowship with them. And in the midst of, of the party, people are talking about Scrooge, understandably so. He's, you know, not a nice guy. And so they're talking about it. This is what happens at parties. Did you see what so-and-so did the other day? You know, so they're talking about him and they're, you know, saying how horrible he is. And Fred stands up and decides to toast him. In fact, Bob Cratchit and Fred both do this. Though treated horribly by Scrooge, in the midst of uh, their circumstance, choose to honor him and ask those around him to toast him. At Bob's house, uh, he's like, we're going to toast. His wife is like, yeah, I don't think so. And he's like, no, no, no. We're going to toast him because he was thankful for what, even though it was meager, he was thankful and he chose to toast him. His nephew decided to toast him as well because for some reason he saw something that was not there, but he believed in him and he stood and they honored him. Wouldn't it be nice if people did that for us when we were having off days that would stand and believe the best of us? Scrooge's invitation to his home, um, also reminded me of a story that's in the book of Luke. It's a parable that Jesus told. It's called the parable of the great feast. And what happens is there's this master of this household and he's prepared a great banquet. And he's in- So we're getting a summary of something that Jesus taught. Nobody's showing up. He sends a servant out, tell him it's time to come. They're like, no, I'm kind of busy. Got other things that came up. I can't be there. So the, sir, the master decides, that's fine. Okay, I'm going to send it out to all the other people. He sends a servant and says, bring me all the people, the lame, the blind, those that are in need, those that will appreciate and receive what I have for them. And so the servant goes out into the highways and byways of life, and he invites all of these people to come to the dinner, to receive, to celebrate with the master of the house. And you know what this is a picture of? This is a picture of Jesus. This is a picture of God's house. He has prepared a banquet table because, you know, we're all in need at some point. And whether it's emotionally, physically, spiritually, it's not necessarily about dinner, although I always could use a good dinner. It's about the things that God has for us. And he invites us to come because of his desire to love us and to bless us and to fill the needs that we have. And what I love about this story... Apparently, uh, she's just pouring her own meaning into that parable. And that parable has implications regarding the people of Israel and Gentiles. That was the point of the parable. 
bless us and to fill the needs that we have. And what I love about this story is that there were no prerequisites. It wasn't like, well, go fight the people up on the north side or go fight. It was everybody. It was just, there was no prerequisites. You didn't have to be all good and wonderful. You just had to say yes to be able to participate in the celebration that God has. Just like we are able to celebrate the grace and goodness of God just by simply saying, yes, we will attend. Jesus, in actuality, is the invitation to the banquet. And you know what else? We've been sent to deliver that invitation to those around us. Did you realize? That's true. Yes, that is absolutely correct. What she's saying here is correct. To those around us. Did you realize that God sends people in your life all the time? You know, I think we pray and we're like, God, do this, or I don't know, or what's going on. And then we don't expect him to really do it. Or we don't notice that he has sent someone to answer that prayer for us. It may even be the person that invited you to church today. They may may be the answer to your prayer, to your call out. I don't know what to do. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know where I'm at. I'm hurting. I'm this. He may have sent that individual to say, hey, why don't you come to church with me this weekend? Because he knew the answer lied within him. And he thought, if you came here today, you might find that you're not alone, that you're loved, and that I've got an answer for you, and that I do care about what you're walking through, and I'm here to be with you. So, I, You got anything regarding repentance and the forgiveness of sins and a crucified and risen Savior? You got anything that involves that? Because that's what Christmas is really ultimately about. Exactly what happened with Scrooge. All he could see was what was wrong in life and what was wrong with the people in his life. But when the spirits came and took him back, he began to realize how many people had actually been sent in his life all along the way. He's shown his sister Fan, who, um, when he was in that boarding house, she convinced her father to change his heart, to see it differently. And she was able to go to that boarding house and hug him and embrace him and say, it's time for you to come home for Christmas. But he had forgotten that she had been sent. He also sent Fezziwig. Now, that's just a strange name. But anyway, this was the name of the mentor that was tell- teaching him how to do business, how to work his trade. But also what Fezziwig showed him was how to value people. He worked real hard, but when it was time to be done, he quit and he enjoyed people. And he always made Scrooge feel valued. Scrooge had forgotten about that. He also had forgotten about Belle. Though he worked and worked, she stood along him, stood alongside him, believed in him until the moment that he said, no, that is not the choice I'm going to make. I'm going to go this direction instead. Even Rob Pratchett and Fred right there in the midst of his present were there Bob's faithful year after year, day after day, staying the long hours that he required. Fred continuing to invite him into his home. Not just, hey, let's go out over here and do something. Into his home, the private part of his life. That's, you know, that's where you let down. That's where you are who you are. He invited Scrooge to come into that intimate part of his life. But you know what happens? When we've got our attention on ourselves, sometimes when we're self-centered, self-centered it can blind us to ourselves and those around us. When I was writing this, I thought of this. You know, when I do this, you know, I can't see you. Do you get that? I can't see you. I only can see me. That's what happens when we're self-centered. I'm looking at me. I don't even see all of me. I see a part of me. But when I open my eyes and look out, 
I see the people that God has put around me to help me walk through my life. The answer he has sent is placed within the people he has invested and planted himself in to bring the answer to you. It also gives us perspective to see ourselves differently when we're just here and I can't see all of what's going on. It wasn't until Scrooge was escorted back that he began to get that revelation. When he was able to see himself for the first time through the eyes of those upon which he had inflicted much pain, but who had chosen to honor him and to believe in him. He was blinded by self-pity. He was angry at what life had dealt him. He didn't realize that God had sent people as an invitation extended to him to allow him to leave his pain behind and rejoin life. Sometimes it takes a visitation for us to see the invitation that God has put in front of us. I'd like to read you a story real quickly that I found when I was studying this week that I feel like embodies the story of Scrooge and who God has called us to be as his children. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we're going to get another story on top of the Scrooge story that's not a biblical story. Again, listen carefully. This is just a perfect sampling of the sentiment, sentimental pop psychology gospel that makes up much of what American evangelicals believe because this is what they're being taught by their pastors. But she's not preaching biblical Christianity or the biblical gospel. This is very sad. Story of Scrooge and who God has called us to be as his children. An elementary school teacher, Jean Thompson, a fifth grade school teacher actually, helped bring about change in one of her students named Teddy Stoddard. Teddy didn't play well with other children. His clothes were always dirty and he constantly needed a bath. Teddy was a sad and sullen little boy. One day, Mrs. Thompson reviewed his school records and was surprised at what she found. His first grade teacher wrote, Teddy is a bright, inquisitive child with a ready laugh. He does his work neatly and has good manners. He is a joy to be around. His second teacher wrote, Teddy is an excellent student, well-liked by his classmates, but is troubled because his mother has terminal illness and life at home must be a struggle. His third grade teacher wrote, Teddy continues to work hard, but his mother's death has been hard and his home life will soon affect him if some steps are not taken. Teddy's fourth grade teacher wrote, Teddy is withdrawn and doesn't show much interest in school. He doesn't have many friends and he sometimes sleeps in class. He is often tardy and he could become a problem. It was nearly Christmas time and children brought her presents wrapped in colorful paper, except for Teddy's, which was wrapped in heavy brown paper from a grocery bag. Mrs. Thompson opened his present and found a rhinestone bracelet with some stones missing and a bottle that was a quarter full of cologne. The other children in the classroom began to laugh, but Mrs. Thompson put the bracelet on and commented on how pretty it was. She also dabbed some of the perfume on her wrist. After the party, Teddy Stoddard stayed behind just long enough to say, Mrs. Thompson, Today, today you smelled just like my mom used to. When the children left, the teacher cried. 
The next day, Mrs. Thompson took a new interest in teaching her children. She worked especially hard with Teddy. As she worked with him, he seemed to come alive. The more she encouraged him, the faster he responded. By the end of the year, he had become one of her smartest children in her class. A year later, she found a note underneath her door at school, Teddy telling her that of all the teachers, she was his favorite. Six years later, she got another letter from Teddy. He wrote that he had finished high school and he was third in his class, and she was still his favorite teacher. Four years later, she got yet another letter saying he had graduated from college with the highest of honors and assured Mrs. Thompson she was still his favorite teacher. Several years later, she received another letter telling how much he had appreciated her as his teacher. She was still his favorite. The letter was signed, Theodore F. Stoddard, M.D. A year later, Mrs. Thompson received a letter stating he was getting married. He explained his father had died a few years earlier and wondered if she would sit in the pew, usually reserved for the mother of the groom. Mrs. Thompson did attend the wedding that day. She smelled just like she had that day many years ago on that last day of school before the Christmas holiday began. If only there were more Mrs. Thompsons in our world that would show compassion, extend a hand to the hurting, that would be willing to look outside themselves and invite someone less fortunate inside their world. Now, I want to point something out. I'm assuming the story of Mrs. Thompson is a true story. It's a beautiful picture of what it means to love your neighbor. It's a great example for us of what it means to love our neighbor. But the Christmas story is about Christ and what he did for us. We're not hearing that. We're not even hearing the right biblical categories at this point, like nothing even remotely close to it. A sentimental story about a woman who made a difference in the world. And the reality is, is that if this kid who was, you know, had such a hard childhood, who grew up to became a doctor and invited his favorite teacher to sit at his wedding, doesn't believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for his sins and wasn't brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of his sins, then he's going to go to hell. And if Mrs. Thompson doesn't trust in Christ for the forgiveness of her sins, so is she. And this will become a very sad, sentimental story because the final chapter is written that they're both thrown into the lake of fire. The Christmas story is about what Christ did, his sacrifice, his death, his resurrection, his visitation, God in human flesh, come to visit earth to live a perfect life under the law and to be crucified on the cross for your sins and mine. That message calls us to repent of our sins and be forgiven. This message just tells us to go and make a better difference in the world. Wow. Someone less fortunate inside their world. 
And Matthew 9, 35 through 37, it says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. In John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus said this, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. God has given us an opportunity to love the people around us. And yes, even the seemingly unlovable. I commission us as the people of God and even the people of this church and say, let's be a church that is filled with compassion. Let's be the church that notices the hurting around us and takes the time to reach out to them. Let's be the church that helps people embrace their presence, that they might realize their potential, even if at first glance they kind of look like Scrooge. Let's ask God to have the eyes to see what's happening around us in our present so we can make a difference in the future of someone else. Number three, Christmas future. It's never too late to change your future. Let's say that together. It's never too late to change your future. As we near the end of the story, the final spirit, the the spirit of Christmas yet to come, takes Scrooge to the Cratchit's home once again. It's a very different atmosphere when he arrives this time. Tiny Tim has now died, and so there's much pain and sadness when he arrives. And Scrooge is tormented even in the moment, realizing that if he had only noticed, he could have made a difference and perhaps changed the fate of that little boy. He also is taken to a place where there's a, a, a man that has died. He's covered, so he doesn't know who he is. And two servants are fighting over his belongings. Who's going to get him before the undertaker arrives to take him away? He's taken to a home where there's a couple that's actually celebrating and rejoicing at the news that he is gone. No longer will they be tormented and persecuted by this predator. Outside the house, he sees two associates discussing, should we really even have a funeral? Because in reality, who's going to even show up? And Scrooge asks the spirit, who is this man? And he takes him to a cemetery. And on the tombstone, the spirit points to the name of the man. It says, Ebenezer Scrooge. Sometimes it takes a visitation to see a transformation. With the realization that his life had really counted for nothing of value, but instead mostly had brought a lot of pain and destruction into the lives of others, Scrooge begs for a second chance. He says, I'll I'll embrace what I've learned in my past, my present, and my future. I'll celebrate Christmas year around. Let me have an opportunity to go back and do it again. And in a moment, he awakes in his bedroom, in his bedchamber. It is Christmas morning, and he has been given a second chance. The scripture says in Isaiah 9 2, the people walking. Is it me or is Christ totally missing from the Christmas carol? This is sad.
The scripture says in Isaiah 9-2, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. The light had dawned. Did it come up that morning? It was Christmas morning. There was a new hope. There was a new opportunity. Scrooge's eyes had been opened. He had an opportunity to not only change his present, but to potentially change his future. And not only his future, but an opportunity to change the future for potentially other people surrounding him. Today, the God of hope is in this place to offer us a very similar opportunity. One, to change our own lives another to make a difference in someone else's. There's a part of the story that I didn't share with you, and I almost didn't put it in, but I felt like God prompted me to drop this in. And it's a part in the story, rarely seen, where Tiny Tim has gone with his father to church on Christmas Day. And on the way back, Tiny Tim says this to his father, that he hoped that people saw him in the church because he was crippled. And that it might be pleasant for them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. Tiny Tim, frail and sick, facing certain death, was not thinking about what he did not have. But he was reflecting on what he did have and how it might encourage someone else. Romans 8.18 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Even at such a young age, Tiny Tim had grasped this truth. He understood that all creation experiences suffering, but he also knew that the benefits of sonship far outweighed any sufferings that he might experience. He had looked beyond his own misfortune He had allowed his own personal trial to be the vehicle through which he exhibited love and concern for the people around him. And though he could not stand or walk in his own natural body, the hope within him allowed him to stand and to walk in the eternal victory purchased for him through Christ. Maybe there's some of you today that are experiencing some really tough times. And you don't have hope in your situation. And you need that same hope that Tiny Tim had to change the outlook on what you're facing so that God can cause you to rise up and walk in victory even as Tiny Tim did. Maybe there's some... Cause you to rise up and walk in victory. You need to let go of so that you can move on. Some people that you need to forgive so that you aren't bound to that past but set free into your present and into your future. Maybe there's some people in here today that have lost sight of what's important. You've got distracted by the busyness of your world and your circumstance. And you need to step away so that you can see the people around you that God has called you to encourage that they might realize their potential. Maybe they need a second chance Maybe someone else thinks they're a lost cause. 24 years ago, I would have said I was a lost cause. I was involved in drugs. I was in horrible relationships. I had attempted suicide on a couple of occasions because I had no hope. I didn't believe in myself, but God believed in me. 
and God's. This is hard. The biblical message is not that God believes in you. Nowhere does such a phrase exist, but we're called to repent and believe in him and what he's done for us. But God believed in me and God sent people in my life that believed in me, that spoke truth. And I am ever so grateful. And I can tell you, I never in a million years would have dreamed that I would be in a church of all places, much less standing before you declaring the goodness of God. I am here as an example of God giving a second chance and redeeming a life. And God loves me no more than he loves each and every one of you that are in the house this morning. And I want to be the one that says to you that God is here to present you with a second chance if you will only reach out and grab it. No, thanks. Um, If God just gave me a second chance, I've already blown it. Second I grasp it, I've already failed. I need more than that. I need full forgiveness and pardon for every sin that I've committed from the time I was conceived into the time I draw my last breath. Because if I'm given a second chance, it's seconds before I blow it. Because the biblical command is that I love God with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my might and strength. And I don't do that. I don't do it perfectly. I don't even know what it means. I fail at it every second that ticks off on the clock. God has to do more for me than just give me a second chance. Because if all he's done is given me a second chance, it's not good news because I've already blown it. And so have you. Reach out and grab it. Because in God's kingdom, it's never too late. You need to invite him into your life. Invite him into your past. Invite him into your present. Invite him into your future. And for those of you that already know him, don't waste what he's invested in you. Don't waste the trials and the hardships. Don't waste the victories that he's given you. But allow them to catapult you into the lives of others to bring hope and restoration and the message that people need to hear in this world right now that are hurting without the hope of Christ that you have. We need to embrace and learn to live in the present so that we can rewrite our future and even create a new legacy that could potentially impact a whole generation. Here's the bottom line. It's never too late for you to make a change in your life or to make a difference in the life of another. Can I pray for you? Father, I thank you for you. Sorry, Joni, I can't let you pray for me. Man, that is the mainstream of American evangelical thought nowadays. Almost completely oblivious to what Christ has done for us. And only self-absorbed in what I've got to do. And Jesus somehow, it makes it possible for you to, well, dream, dream your impossible dreams and to live them out. It's going to give you a second chance so that you can get it right and, and, and experience 
a life of significance and meaning and making a difference in the world and all that kind of stuff. Now, it's true that there's a lot of Christians who, by loving their neighbors as a fruit of repentance, as a fruit of the Holy Spirit, have significantly impacted the lives of other people. But that's not the gospel. That's the fruit of the gospel. That's not the root. That's the fruit. The root is Christ and what he's done and him crucified. And if you're going to tell the Christmas story without telling that story, you haven't told the Christmas story. And it's fact, it's to miss the whole point altogether. I'm not the biggest fan of uh, Dickens' Christmas Carol. At least in the modern television renditions of it, Christ is missing. The virgin-born Prince of Peace. The virgin-born Son of Righteousness. The virgin-born Emmanuel, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's missing, for the most part, from that story. In fact, in the modern-day tellings of it, I don't think Jesus gets mentioned really at all. And sadly, this sermon that's supposedly based on the story of Scrooge suffers from the same problem. And unfortunately, the gospel that we heard Joni preach wasn't the biblical gospel. It's not the good news. The good news is so much better than this. Sad. Sad. So, um, what do you think? You know, I, I'd... I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to uh, email me your feedback and tell me what you thought of anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. Till, uh, well, Monday. May God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.